Section twenty five of the Journals of Robert Falcon Scott, Volume One, by Robert Falcon Scott. This is a LibriVox recording. Section twenty five. Chapter twelve. Awaiting the Crozier Party. Part two. Wednesday, July the fifth. Atkinson has a bad hand to-day. Immense blisters on every finger, giving them the appearance of sausages. To-night Ponting has photographed the hand. As I expected, some amendment of Atkinson's tale, as written last night, is necessary, partly due to some lack of coherency in the tale, as first told, and partly a reconsideration of the circumstances by Atkinson himself. It appears he first hit Inaccessible Island, and got his hand frostbitten before he reached it. It was only on arrival in its lee that he discovered the frostbite. He must have waited there some time, then groped his way to the western end, thinking he was near the ramp, then wandering away in a swirl of drift to clear some irregularities at the ice foot, he completely lost the island when he could only have been a few yards from it. He seems in this predicament to have clung to the old idea of walking up wind, and it must be considered wholly providential that on this course he next struck Tent Island. It was round this island that he walked, finally digging himself a shelter on its lee side, under the impression that it was Inaccessible Island. When the moon appeared, he seems to have judged its bearing well, and as he travelled homeward he was much surprised to see the real Inaccessible Island appear on his left. The distance of Tent Island, four to five miles, partly accounts for the time he took in returning. Everything goes to confirm the fact that he had a very close shave of being lost altogether. For some time past some of the ponies have had great irritation of the skin. I felt sure it was due to some parasite, though the soldier thought the food responsible, and changed it. Today a tiny body louse was revealed under Atkinson's microscope after capture from Snatcher's coat. A dilute solution of carbolic is expected to rid the poor beasts of their pests, but meanwhile one or two of them have rubbed off patches of hair which they can ill afford to spare in this climate. I hope we shall get over the trouble quickly. The day has been gloriously fine again, with bright moonlight all the afternoon. It was a wondrous sight to see Erebus emerge from soft, filmy clouds of mist, as though some thin veiling had been withdrawn with infinite delicacy to reveal the pure outline of this moonlit mountain. Thursday, July the 6th, continued. The temperature has taken a plunge to minus 46 degrees last night. It is now minus 45 degrees, with a ten-mile breeze from the south. Frostbiting weather. Went for a short run on foot this forenoon, and a longer one on ski this afternoon. The surface is bad after the recent snowfall. A new pair of sealskin overshoes for ski, made by Evans, seem to have been a complete success. He has modified the shape of the toe to fit the ski irons better. I am very pleased with this arrangement. I find it exceedingly difficult to settle down to solid work, just at present, and keep putting off the tasks which I have set myself. The sun has not yet risen a degree of the eleven degrees below our horizon, which it was at noon on midwinter day, and yet to-day there was a distinct red in the northern sky. Perhaps such sunset colours have something to do with this cold snap. Friday, July the 7th. The temperature fell to minus 49 degrees last night. Our record so far, unlikely to remain so, one would think. This morning it was fine and calm, 
temperature minus forty-five degrees, but this afternoon a thirty-mile wind sprang up from the southeast, and the temperature only gradually rose to minus thirty degrees, never passing above that point. I thought it a little too strenuous, and so was robbed of my walk. The dogs' coats are getting pretty thick, and they seem to take matters pretty comfortably. The ponies are better, I think, but I shall be glad when we are sure of having rid them of their pest. I was the victim of a very curious illusion to-day. On our small heating-stove stands a cylindrical ice-melter, which keeps up the supply of water necessary for the dark-room and other scientific instruments. This iron container naturally becomes warm, if it is not fed with ice, and it is generally hung around with socks and mitts, which require drying. I put my hand on the cylindrical vessel this afternoon, and withdrew it sharply with the sensation of heat. To verify the impression I repeated the action two or three times, when it became so strong that I loudly warned the owners of the socks, etc., of the peril of burning to which they were exposed. Upon this Mears said, "'But they filled the melter with ice a few minutes ago,' and then, coming over to feel the surface himself, added, "'Why, it's cold, sir!' And indeed so it was. The slightly damp, chilled surface of the iron had conveyed to me the impression of excessive heat. There is nothing intrinsically new in this observation. It has often been noticed that metal surfaces at low temperatures give a sensation of burning to the bare touch, but none the less it is an interesting variant of the common fact. Apropos, Atkinson is suffering a good deal from his hand. The frostbite was deeper than I thought. Fortunately, he can now feel all his fingers though it was twenty-four hours before the sensation returned to one of them. Monday, July the 10th. We have had the worst gale I have ever known in these regions, and have not yet done with it. The wind started at about midday on Friday, and increasing in violence reached an average of sixty miles for one hour on Saturday, the gusts at this time exceeding seventy miles per hour. This force of wind, although exceptional, has not been without parallel earlier in the year, but the extraordinary feature of this gale was the long continuance of a very cold temperature. On Friday night the thermometer registered minus thirty-nine degrees. Throughout Saturday and the greater part of Sunday it did not rise above minus thirty-five degrees. Late yesterday it was in the minus twenties, and to-day, at length, it has risen to zero. Needless to say, no one has been far from the hut. It was my turn for duty on Saturday night, and on the occasions when I had to step out of doors— I was struck with the impossibility of enduring such conditions for any length of time. One seemed to be robbed of breath as they burst on one. The fine snow beat in behind the wind-guard, and ten paces against the wind were sufficient to reduce one's face to the verge of frostbite. To clear the anemometer vein it was necessary to go to the other end of the hut and climb a ladder. Twice, whilst engaged in this task, I had literally to lean against the wind, with head bent and face averted, and so stagger crab-like on my course. In those two days of really terrible weather, our thoughts often turned to absentees at Cape Crozier, with the devout hope that they may be safely housed. They are certain to have been caught by this gale, but I trust before it reached them they had managed to get up some sort of shelter. Sometimes I have imagined them getting much more wind than we do, yet at others it seems difficult to believe that the emperor penguins have chosen an excessively wind-swept area for their rookery. Today, with the temperature at zero, one can walk about outside without inconvenience, in spite of a fifty-mile wind. 
Although I am loath to believe it, there must be some measure of acclimatization, for it is certain we should have felt today's wind severely when we first arrived in McCurdo Sound. Tuesday, July the 11th. Never was such persistent bad weather. Today the temperature is up to 5 degrees to 7 degrees, the wind 40 to 50 miles per hour, the air thick with snow, and the moon a vague blue. This is the fourth day of gale. If one reflects on the quality of transported air, nearly 4,000 miles, one gets a conception of the transference which such a gale affects, and must conclude that potentially warm upper currents are pouring into our polar region from more temperate sources. The dogs are very gay and happy in the comparative warmth. I have been going to and fro on the home beach, and about the rocky knolls in its environment. In spite of the wind it was very warm. I dug myself a hole in a drift in the shelter of a large boulder, and lay down in it, and covered my legs with loose snow. It was so warm that I could have slept very comfortably. I have been amused and pleased lately in observing the manners and customs of the persons in charge of our stores. Quite a number of secret caches exist, in which articles of value are hidden from public knowledge, so that they may escape use until a real necessity arises. The policy of every storekeeper is to have something up his sleeve for a rainy day. For instance, Evans, petty officer, after thoroughly examining the purpose of some individual who is pleading for a piece of canvas, will admit that he may have a small piece somewhere which could be used for it, when, as a matter of fact, he possesses quite a number of rolls of that material. Tools, metal material, leather, straps, and dozens of items are administered with the same spirit of jealous guardianship by Day, Lashley, Oates, and Mears, whilst our main storekeeper Bowers even affects to bemoan imaginary shortages. Such parsimony is the best guarantee that we are prepared to face any serious call. Wednesday, July the 12th. All night and today wild gusts of wind shaking the hut. Long, ragged, twisted wind-cloud in the middle heights. A watery moon shining through a filmy cirrostratus. The outlook wonderfully desolate, with its ghostly illumination and patchy clouds of flying snowdrift. It would be hardly possible for a tearing, raging wind to make itself more visible. At Windvane Hill, the anemometer has registered 68 miles between 9 and 10 a.m., a record. The gusts of the hut frequently exceed 70 miles per hour. Luckily, the temperature is up to 5 degrees, so that there is no hardship for the workers outside. Thursday, July the 13th. The wind continued to blow throughout the night, with squalls of even greater violence than before. A new record was created by a gust of 77 miles per hour, shown by the anemometer. The snow is so hard-blown that only the fiercest gusts raise the drifting particles. It is interesting to note the balance of nature whereby one evil is eliminated by the excess of another. For an hour after lunch yesterday, the gale showed signs of moderation, and the ponies had a short walk over the flow. Out for exercise at this time, I was obliged to lean against the wind, my light overall clothes flapping wildly and almost dragged from me. Later, when the wind rose again, it was quite an effort to stagger back to the hut against it. This morning the gale still rages, but the sky is much clearer. The only definite clouds are those which hang to the southward of Erebus summit, but the moon, though bright, still exhibits a watery appearance, showing that there is still a thin stratus above us. 
The work goes on very steadily. The men are making crampons and ski-boots of the new style. Evans is constructing plans of the dry valley and the Koiklitz glacier with the help of the western party. The physicists are busy always. Mears is making dog-harness. Oates ridding the ponies of their parasites, and Ponting printing from his negatives. Science cannot be served by dilettante methods, but demands a mind spurred by ambition, or the satisfaction of ideals. Our most popular game for evening recreation is chess. So many players have developed that our two sets of chessmen are inadequate. Friday, July the 14th. We have had a horrible fright, and are not yet out of the wood. At noon yesterday, one of the best ponies, Bones, suddenly went off his feed. Soon after, it was evident that he was distressed, and there could be no doubt that he was suffering from colic. Oates called my attention to it, but we were neither much alarmed, remembering the speedy recovery of Jimmy Pig under similar circumstances. Later, the pony was sent out for exercise with Crean. I passed him twice, and seemed to gather that things were well, but Crean afterwards told me that he had had considerable trouble. Every few minutes the poor beast had been seized with a spasm of pain, had first dashed forward as though to escape it, and then endeavoured to lie down. Crean had had much difficulty in keeping him in, and on his legs, for he is a powerful beast. When he returned to the stable he was evidently worse, and Oates and Anton patiently dragged a sack to and fro under his stomach. Every now and then he attempted to lie down, and Oates eventually thought it wiser to let him do so. Once down, his head gradually drooped, until he lay at length, every now and again twitching very horribly with the pain, and from time to time raising his head, and even scrambling to his legs when it grew intense. I don't think I ever realised before how pathetic a horse could be under such conditions. No sound escapes him. His misery can only be indicated by those distressing spasms, and by dumb movements of the head, turning with patient expression, always suggestive of appeal. Although alarmed by this time, remembering the care with which the animals are being fed, I could not picture anything but a passing indisposition. But as hour after hour passed without improvement, it was impossible not to realise that the poor beast was dangerously ill. Oates administered an opium pill, and later on a second. Sacks were heated in the oven and placed on the poor beast. Beyond this nothing could be done except to watch. Oates and Crean never left the patient. As the evening wore on, I visited the stable again and again, but only to hear the same tale. No improvement. Towards midnight I felt very downcast. It is so very certain that we cannot afford to lose a single pony. The margin of safety has already been far overstepped. We are reduced to face the circumstance that we must keep all the animals alive or greatly risk failure. So far everything has gone so well with them that my fears of a loss had been lulled in a growing hope that all would be well. Therefore at midnight, when poor Bones had continued in pain for twelve hours and showed little sign of improvement, I felt my fleeting sense of security rudely shattered. It was shortly after midnight when I was told that the animals seemed a little easier. At two-thirty I was again in the stable, and found the improvement had been maintained. The horse still lay on its side, with outstretched head, but the spasms had ceased, its eye looked less distressed, and its ears pricked to occasional noises. As I stood looking, it suddenly raised its head, 
and rose without effort to its legs. Then, in a moment, as though some bad dream had passed, it began to nose at some hay, and at its neighbour. Within three minutes it had drunk a bucket of water, and had started to feed. I went to bed at three with much relief. At noon to-day the immediate cause of the trouble, and an indication that there is still risk, were disclosed in a small ball of semi-fermented hay, covered with mucus, and containing tapeworms. So far not very serious, but unfortunately attached to this mass was a strip of the lining of the intestine. Atkinson, from a humanly comparative point of view, does not think this is serious, if great care is taken with the food for a week or so, and so one can hope for the best. Meanwhile we have had much discussion as to the first cause of the difficulty. The circumstances possibly contributing are as follows. Fermentation of the hay, insufficiency of water, overheated stable, a chill from exercise after the gale. I think all of these may have had a bearing on the case. It can scarcely be coincidence that the two ponies which have suffered so far are those which are nearest the stove-end of the stable. In future the stove will be used more sparingly. A large ventilating hole is to be made near it, and an allowance of water is to be added to the snow hitherto given to the animals. In the food line we can only exercise such precautions as are possible, but, one way or another, we ought to be able to prevent any more danger of this description. Saturday, July the 15th. There was strong wind with snow this morning and the wind remained keen and cold in the afternoon. But to-night it has fallen calm, with a promising clear sky outlook. I have been up the ramp, clambering about in my sealskin overshoes, which seem extraordinarily satisfactory. Oates thinks a good few of the ponies have got worms, and we are considering means of ridding them. Bones seems to be getting on well, though not yet quite so buckish as he was before this trouble. A good big ventilator has been fitted in the stable, it is not easy to get over the alarm of Thursday night. The situation is altogether too critical. Sunday, July the 16th. Another slight alarm this morning. The pony China went off his feed at breakfast time and lay down twice. He was up and well again in half an hour. But what on earth is it that is disturbing these poor beasts? Usual Sunday routine. Quiet day, except for a good deal of wind off and on. The Crozier party must be having a wretched time. Monday, July the 17th. The weather still very unsettled. The wind comes up with a rush to fade in an hour or two. Clouds chase over the sky in similar fashion. The moon has dipped during the daylight hours, and so one way or another there is little to attract one out of doors. Yet we are only nine days off the light valley of the day when we left off football. I hope we shall be able to recommence the game in that time. I am glad that the light is coming for more than one reason. The gale, and consequent inaction, not only affected the ponies. Ponting is not very fit as a consequence. His nervous temperament is of the quality to take this wintering experience badly. Atkinson has some difficulty in persuading him to take exercise. He managed only by dragging him out to his own work, digging holes in the ice. Taylor is another backslider in the exercise line, and is not looking well. If we can get these people to run about at football, all will be well. Anyway, the return of the light should cure all ailments, physical and mental. Tuesday, July the 18th. 
A very brilliant red sky at noon to-day, and enough light to see one's way about. This fleeting hour of light is very pleasant, but of course dependent on a clear sky, very rare. Went round the outer berg in the afternoon. It was all I could do to keep up with Snatcher on the homeward round, speaking well for his walking powers. Wednesday, July the 19th, again calm and pleasant. The temperature is gradually falling down to minus 35 degrees. Went out to the old working crack, north of Inaccessible Island. Nelson and Evans had had great difficulty in rescuing their sounding sledge, which had been left near here before the gale. The course of events is not very clear, but it looks as though the gale pressed up the crack, raising broken pieces of the thin ice formed after recent opening movements. These raised pieces had become nuclei of heavy snowdrifts, which in turn weighing down the flow had allowed water to flow in over the sledge level. It is surprising to find such a big disturbance from what appears to be a very simple cause. This crack is now joined, and the contraction is taking on a new one, which has opened much nearer to us, and seems to run to Cape Barn. We have noticed a very curious appearance of heavenly bodies when setting in a north-westerly direction. About the time of midwinter, the moon observed in this position appeared in a much distorted shape of blood-red colour. It might have been a red flare or distant bonfire, but could not have been guessed for the moon. Yesterday the planet Venus appeared under similar circumstances, as a ship's side-light or Japanese lantern. In both cases there was a flickering in the light and a change of colour from deep orange-yellow to blood-red, but the latter was dominant. Thursday, July the 20th, Friday 21st, Saturday 22nd. There is very little to record. The horses are going on well. All are in good form, at least for the moment. They drink a good deal of water in the morning. Saturday, July the 22nd, continued. This, and the better ventilation of the stable, makes for improvement, we think. Perhaps the increase of salt allowance is also beneficial. Today we have another raging blizzard, the wind running up to seventy-two miles per hour in gusts. One way and another, the Crozier party must have had a pretty poor time. I am thankful to remember that the light will be coming on apace now. Monday, July the 24th. The blizzard continued throughout yesterday, Sunday, in the evening reaching a record force of eighty-two miles per hour. The vein of our anemometer is somewhat sheltered. Simpson finds the hill readings twenty per cent higher. Hence, in such gusts as this, the free wind must reach nearly a hundred miles per hour, a hurricane force. Today Nelson found that his sounding sledge had been turned over. We passed a quiet Sunday, with the usual service to break the weekday routine. During my night watch last night I could observe the rapid falling of the wind, which on dying away left a still atmosphere almost oppressively warm, at seven degrees. The temperature has remained comparatively high today. I went to see the crack at which soundings were taken a week ago. Then it was several feet open, with thin ice between. Now it is pressed up into a sharp ridge three to four feet high. The edge pressed up shows an eighteen-inch thickness. This is, of course, an effect of the warm weather. Tuesday, July the 25th. Wednesday, July the 26th. There is really very little to be recorded in these days. Life proceeds very calmly, if somewhat monotonously. Everyone seems fit. There is no sign of depression. To all outward appearance, the ponies are in better form than they have ever been. 
The same may be said of the dogs, with one or two exceptions. The light comes on apace. Today, Wednesday, it was very beautiful at noon. The air was very clear, and the detail of the western mountains was revealed in infinitely delicate contrasts of light. Thursday, July the 27th. Friday, July the 28th. Calmer days. The sky rosier, the light visibly advancing. We have never suffered from low spirits, so that the presence of day raises us above a normal cheerfulness to the realm of high spirits. The light, merry humour of our company has never been eclipsed. The good-natured, kindly chaff has never ceased since those early days of enthusiasm which inspired them. They have survived the winter days of stress, and already renew themselves with the coming of spring. If pessimistic moments had foreseen the growth of rifts in the bond forged by these amenities, they stand prophetically falsified. There is no longer room for doubt that we shall come to our work with a unity of purpose and a disposition for mutual support which have never been equalled in these paths of activity. Such a spirit should tide us over all minor difficulties. It is a good omen. End of chapter 12, part 2